I don't feel threatened by chat, GPT, you know, or any other alternative. First of all, when it comes to content design, most of our work happens before we start typing anything on our keyboards. And maybe in the future, that part of work can also be replaced, you know, but so far there is no AI to go to stakeholder meetings instead of me, you know, attend user interviews and ask questions and go to design critiques and, you know, have discussions with the designers and other writers on the team. I don't feel that anytime soon we can be replaced by an AI. This is Writers in Tech, a podcast where today's top content strategists, UX writers, and content designers share their well-kept industry secrets. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Writers in Tech, a podcast brought to you by the UX Running Hub, which is an online education platform for UX writers, content designers, and so on. Today, we have a fantastic guest from Hungary. Her name is Ilana Zolobowski, and uh, I know Ilana for a few years now, for a lot of years now, right? Since uh, Yeah, since 2019, I think. Right, when you attended the UX Writing Academy, correct? Yeah, yeah, I think it was about that time. That's awesome. And since then, you had a fantastic career as a UX writer, going full pre, and then Ecosia, and then LastPass, right? Which is where you're working today. Yes, Ecosia was a freelance thing, but LastPass and Prezi are my full-time. That's awesome. I would love to hear more about your journey to how did you get started in UX writing? It all started in 2019. That's when I discovered UX writing because I was doing content marketing, but actually I was doing all the content in a company. It was about 30 people, so it wasn't like a particularly small startup, but it was very dynamic and I was sort of the content person. And, you know, I would do email marketing and blog posts and social media and all sorts of writing and content. And at some point, the developers started coming to me with questions like, oh, you know, how should we name this button? What do you think? So I started looking into it and I realized that what, we, what we're doing with those developers is microcopy. And I thought, hmm, this is pretty interesting because you can, you know, really focus your like writing efforts on just a very small piece of text and look at the flow and think about what works here. And I think that's how I discovered the UX writing course that you were holding at the time. And uh, yeah, I felt very excited that I can have this very special niche. So that's where it all began. What a journey. I think you were in the second cohort of the program. Today is the 15th cohort. We're still holding it, we're still running it. Nice. I always have a spot in my heart for the first students. I was really happy to find it. I didn't even know, you know, it's possible to have that kind of content job. That's that's an interesting point of view. So based on your view, based on your angle, what changed in the industry since you started working as a UX writer until today? That's a good question. The whole tech field, right, is developing fast changing environment. But at the same time, some things I guess they stay the same. It's just people trying to work together, trying to make something, you know, happen. And maybe there are more tools. I feel like there are more tools and there's definitely more awareness, like not enough awareness. But when I say awareness, I mean other team members and companies in general being aware that content design is a discipline, that it needs resources, just like any other 
But I think I see more UX writing, content design roles, more discussions around the subject, more conferences, more books coming out. So I think in these four, four years, there's been a lot going on. And I'm very excited to feel like there's a place for content designers and UX writers. Maybe those terms are, you know, the same, but people prefer different names, I think. So I'm really happy that there is a place at the table for content designers now. That's awesome. It wasn't like that a few years ago, and now it's more common. Do you feel like the market of UX writers is a bit saturated now with everything going on in tech? You know, there are a lot of layoffs lately. We are in February 2023. So what do you think about what's going on in the market right now and all of that? Of course, I follow a lot of people on LinkedIn, and I think I read LinkedIn almost every day, and I see people getting laid off. And my friends, some of my friends were laid off, so it's very real. But at the same time, I also feel like people are very, very hopeful. I mean, of course, they are upset and some of them are angry and it's completely understandable. But based on my experience, at least people in the UX field, I feel like they seem like they're okay and that they're hopeful that they will find another job, be it a full-time position or freelance. I feel like maybe it's just my you know, group of people around me, but freelance is definitely an option for those who were laid off, or at least they consider it, which is great because I feel like companies will invite more and more freelancers to collaborate, to work with them. And that also makes me feel like people can find alternative positions, not just in full-time employment. These are my two cents. But I'm not a you know market analyst. It's just what I see from conversations. Of course, of on. We have a lot of people in the audience that want to get into the field of UX writing and they're very curious to know how they should do that. So six months ago, maybe one year ago, Dancer was a bit different because it was like you had so many companies hiring for so many roles for UX writers and content designers. And as you said, now it's a bit different. Now we said that freelancing can be an option, but what other tactics do you think they should tackle in order to get into the field? And do you feel like there is going to be demand for this field even in the future? I hope that now that the tech world is discovering the value of content design, you know, the whole field will not just sort of roll back and be like, nah, we don't need it. We can, you know, get away without it. So I think, I feel again, you know, I'm not sure, but I feel like it won't happen. But like I said, maybe if it's hard to find full-time employment, freelancing can be the way. And for that, there are also separate platforms. And I think networking is one of the most important things. And it's not as difficult as it sounds like, well, like, where will I meet those people? Because internet, you can actually reach out and you can write to both recruiters and just other content designers, UX writers, and people will try and help you. Like we all share, you know, job links. Someone sees something somewhere, maybe a job board, maybe a Slack channel or, you know, like a Slack community. I suppose there is a separate one for content designers. Of course, there is one. LinkedIn groups. So I feel like it's all about people. Like it's all about reaching out to people in person or online, you know, mostly online, of course, because we're all global and like all over the world now. I mean, connected through the internet. And I feel like people should just not be afraid of writing a message. It's really okay. I've been getting some messages, you know, I would write messages and just reach out to people when I, when I looked for 
mentors. You know, I use the platforms that connect mentees and mentors. So I think it's just all about talking to people and yeah, relying on that human connection to, to find your next job. That's awesome. Those are great tips. Looking right now for a freelance gig as a UX writer, and I'm building my online network on LinkedIn and reaching out to people. So what do you think the type of messaging or approach I should take? Like, what should I write, actually? You know, just today, I came across a post. I wish I remember it. Who wrote it? I don't, unfortunately, but I really like the message. The person basically was saying that try not to write like you're writing for your peers, When you write about yourself, you know, maybe you are focusing on posting on LinkedIn, maybe you're focusing on posting on other social media, like building your your presence. And of course, at first, it's maybe easier to, you know, write about yourself, like, I don't know, five things, you know, I learned on my content design path, or this is how you approach a user interview, like, you know, these things, which rather seem like tips for your peers. So instead of writing just that, because this is really good. Try to write posts and, you know, create content, which is directed at people who might want to hire you. So try to write, you know, for your potential employers. And I thought it's a really good advice because I feel like people often default to to writing about their expertise in a way that it's more beneficial for peers rather than employers. I know it's a very thin line and I haven't had much time to think about it yet because I only came across it today, but I think there's a lot to think about there. Maybe I would suggest that if you're interested in, you know, posting about yourself. And I think what's also important is to market yourself very carefully. I think that, you know, the names that you put in your LinkedIn descriptions, in your social media, it's really important to mention that you're a freelance content designer, for example, or maybe you have a niche, maybe you specifically want to work in mobility, you know, maybe you're interested in car sharing, like um, electric, you know, cars or, I don't know, scooters, and then you add that keyword there. So just kind of like increasing your chances of being discovered by people who also go on LinkedIn and social media, because let's be honest, you know, we're all there a lot of the time. I would say just be mindful about what you write and how you present yourself. And of course, we cannot, you know, deny the importance of the algorithms. You have to be quite consistent and you're writing has to be compelling, which is probably not that much of an issue if you are a content designer, because probably you write pretty well. Or if you are, you know, aspiring to be one, I think you're probably interested in writing. So yeah, I think that's what I would say. And do you have any recommendations for uh, resources for people that uh, want to have better compelling writing uh, skills? Books. I'm, I'm a huge bookworm. And when I say books, You know, I don't necessarily mean that you have to go and buy the UX, you know, the UX books. If you can, that's great. There are a lot of publishers, like I just have a couple here, for example, the O'Reilly or A Book Apart, you know, like there are a lot of great books on on UX content design, but it's sort of like this, it's it's a nice thing to do. It's an extra step, I would say. Reading good literature, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to be very, I don't know, imaginative. You can just turn to, not to sound boring, like, you know, the classics, I don't know, Shakespeare (laughs) or something modern, like, I don't know, Salinger, Wolf, you know, Virginia Wolf. I'm just thinking about the books that are like right behind me, you know, on my bookshelf that I really like the authors that I really like. So 
And use a pencil. I, I really like just underlining good writing. Like as I'm reading, I always kind of make notes and remarks or just, you know, lines under words and phrases that I find interesting. I feel like this kind of active reading really helps with good writing. That's quite impressive in my opinion, because it's challenging to read more than it used to be. You really need to make time for reading definitely with intentions, right? Like sometimes you can, but you really need to build a habit around actively reading. Some people get it really, really easily. You know, they can just pick a book, finish it in a couple of days or actively learning it in one month, but actually learning from it and learning it. Sure. I like to learn books. I don't like to read books. It's not easy. No, because you need to let it sink and you need to review it again. Maybe the idea is a bit more complicated, so you want to get a few angles of it. And maybe you just keep having distractions in your life. They're taking away your attention spam from actually reading. It's difficult. You know, people use TikTok yeah. these days. That's very like, you know, very specific way to consume information. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, sometimes my friends know that I like reading and I don't read as much as I used to, be honest with you. But sometimes people just, you know, come to me and they ask, okay, how do I get back into reading? And I always say, start with a really short book because the satisfaction of finishing a book will, you know, propel you towards the next one. Potentially, it doesn't work for everyone, but there is something very, you know, pleasant about closing a book that you just finished. And I think it can help if you, if your goals, just like with anything else, you know, like your goals have to be realistic. So don't start with war and peace, you, you know, just take something easy, short, but, you know, good writing. It's really easy to find a good book. I love Goodreads. I always go there for recommendations and I like checking out my friends' book reviews. So, and there's no shame in struggling with reading. It's something that we all, I think, have an issue with because, yeah, there's a lot of information flowing in the air. For me, I guess it's not the best tip and it's not the best tip to be proud of, but I sometimes read books in pieces. You know, I just pick it at some point in my life. I randomly open it. I'm talking about nonfiction books, right? Not about fiction because mm -hmm. fiction, you need to have like storyline. But more about like nonfiction books, about management, about user experience, about design and so on. And sometimes I just try to review for new ideas and I pick one chapter and I read it. And maybe one day I will read another chapter, maybe one weekend I will have some time and I will go through the first half or something like that. And then I just my mind work, I think, in a different way sometimes. It's less linear than I think. It's more like scattered. So I'm trying to go with it. And for me, it's sometimes it's working. Sometimes it's too much like all over the place because there is a lot of information. But I also find this, this trick quite useful in a few books that I've read. Totally. I, I have like five, six books on rotation, you know, and there is always an audiobook. And if I get bored, I just take another one. And I think what you mentioned about reading chapters that are relevant to you from nonfiction books, that makes total sense. I mean, I've done it myself so many times with like work-related books that, you know, maybe I'm wondering and I know how to like what's the best way to research something that I'm currently you know, confused about. And I only need to look at research 
methods. I don't want to read the whole book on, I don't know, strategy or something. So, uh, you know, yay, because we have a table of contents and we can choose which part to read. We don't have to go through the whole thing in one go. Exactly. And yeah, I used to be ashamed of it, you know, I used to feel like, oh, I'm not good enough. I can't Don't read. be. No, no, no. <laughs> No, because it is not a linear process necessarily, specifically with nonfiction, because you have so many ideas in that book and usually they build up very slowly to one specific big idea. And sometimes I just, you know, I read one chapter and then another one. I used to read like very linear and then I was like, okay, that's boring. And then I left the book. But now I'm kind of like, when I get the idea, I just try to move to the juicy parts, to the meat. And then it's like, it's easier to read it like that without feeling guilt or shame that I didn't went through the whole process. Anyway, that's just me. That's cool. So you said that you read with a pencil and what specifically do you highlight and what's your process when, mm -hmm. when doing that? So when it comes to paper books, I honestly, I really struggle with, you know, writing in a book, <laughs> but I just keep my iPad next to me and I add interesting words to my notes app. And by interesting words, I mean, it can be something that I've never come across, or it's a word I know, but I don't, you know, use very often. It doesn't mean that I necessarily want to use those words in my UX copy, you know, because when I work, I try to make sure it's plain English. I'm very mindful of non-native English speakers, of localization. So, of course, I will not put you know, like really fancy words in the copy. But uh, I feel like nevertheless, it just enriches your vocabulary. Like it, it helps you express your ideas faster. And it actually helps you to get to those simple words more easily, you know, if you have a bigger vocabulary, I feel. But the way I do it, I make notes in my notes app. And when I read magazines, For example, I gave myself the luxury of having the paper version of New Yorker and uh, it just, you know, mm. arrives in my Sounds mailbox. Cool. Yes. It, I was like, okay, it's, it's the 21st century, but I really want that, you know, paper version. <laughs> and uh, It's yeah, interesting that the more, we, the more we innovate, it's like we, we prefer to get back now that like AI art, for example, became so common. Many people just go back to like, paintings with their hand and not with the computer. It's really interesting to, to redraw back as technology proceeds. It's interesting. I was thinking about the same. I thought, oh, wow, maybe more artists will be interested in, you know, analog work because of the whole AI situation. But yeah, so with, mag with magazines, I just take my pen and I just underline everything. And then I go back and again, put everything in that notes app. And sometimes with books as well, I just use a pencil. So it's cumbersome, you know, it's not the fastest process, but uh, this intentional slowing down, I think it works because you have to take a moment, you know, pick up your pen, find the word with your eyes in the text, underline it, or, you know, you pick up the IVA, then you have to type it there. Or first you underline it, then you type it in there. And then chances are, You've seen that word, you know, three, four times and it's there. Next time you write, you're mindful of it. Or you, maybe you go back to the notes, take another look. It's like a very long-term investment into your vocabulary, I think. But 
you know, I'm the kind of person who loves talking about etymology, like at a dinner party. And when I find my crowds and we just, you know, after a few drinks, we're like, oh, do you know like where this word comes from? And everyone's like, hmm, this is interesting. So I know I'm kind of a, like a language freak and there's a reason why I did an English, you know, major. I know it's not for everyone, but I think if you see something, note it. I also take photos of interesting announcements or notices. I recently went to London and they're really good at that. Like they're like, I don't know if you go down in the underground, they have these warnings and notices everywhere and it's in English. So it's exciting because I live in Hungary and everything is in Hungarian here. I don't have, you know, such exposure to, to English in Budapest. And uh, I just take pictures and then I sometimes, you know, show it to like my colleagues, like, oh, have you seen like, this is really good wording and we just, you know, or, oh, it's really bad. That's another thing that's, you know, we often talk about like bad copy, how to not write things. So just surround yourself with the good and the bad words that you find, you know, be it from your books or the subway. I don't know. I find your process to get inspiration from this world fascinating. Thank you. <laughs> That's really cool. It reminded me that book by Don Norman, Design of Everyday Life, where he speaks about how, you know, he look at nature to figure out how design should work. Like he look on how birds fly. And then based on that, he tried to think about new concepts for like aviation design and, and how to find design everywhere, basically. So it's the same with you, only with finding words and content and language and the origin of the language and the bad type of design and the worst type of design only with words. I think it's pretty cool. You know, I used to feel bad about it. Now it's my turn to make a confession because, you know, I when I was younger, when I just started, I think I imagined that professional, you know, UX writers and content designers, they have some secret knowledge, you know, they read all the books, they did all the courses. You know, it didn't stop me from becoming one, but I was like secretly very concerned that <laughs> I don't have the right knowledge. And uh, and now I feel like, you know, after years of kind of doing this, I feel like it's just one of the ways, it's just like my way to kind of enlarge my vocabulary or, you know, think about copy in this very like holistic way, I suppose. And uh, yeah, it's funny because it, it used to make me feel a little bit embarrassed that I sort of draw inspiration from, you know, everyday life and not from some smart lectures and courses. Of, I mean, of course, I also um, checked a few out and I do have, you know, books on content design, but this is just what comes to me naturally, I think, just looking around and seeing content everywhere. I sometimes get upset, like, about bad design, but I think we all do. Also, I think what helps is, I think there's the word design in there, you know, for a reason, it's content design. So I really enjoy looking at art and going to museums. And I attended art school when I was younger, and I'm very thankful for that because I think it helps me to not have... Um, you know, such a bad imposter syndrome in with the actual visual designers. Even when I talk about content, I allow myself, you know, a few comments about maybe fonts or, you know, the placement and like everything visual that surrounds the copy, you know, that I work on. So yeah, it's copy and it's, you know, design and you have to be, you have to be okay with both parts, I suppose. Great confession. We were talking briefly before about the AI stuff right, that is going on right now. The craziness, some would say. 
So what's your take on that? Is it a friend? Is it a foe? Is it here to replace us? Is it here to help us? Do you use it yourself? Do you recommend any tools or processes yourself? What do you think? Yeah, it's it's the subject these days. And I don't feel threatened by chat, GPT, you know, or any other alternative. First of all, when it comes to content design, most of our work happens before we start typing anything on our keyboards. <laughs> and uh, maybe in the future, that part of work can also be replaced, you know, but so far there is no AI to go to stakeholder meetings instead of me, you know, attend user interviews and ask questions and go to design critiques and, you know, have discussions with the designers and other writers on the team. I don't feel that anytime soon we can be replaced by an AI, but maybe if I was a marketing writer, I would have been a little bit more concerned. <laughs> That's a possibility. However, still, you know, people often mention DeepL and Google Translate, and we still have localization teams and we have translators. So I think that's something to think about that we're not there yet with our technology. So we, we cannot really be replaced. And also it's just a certain type of copy. So for example, you know, the AI that we're all hyped up about now, it's, it's trained on a certain data set. And of course it can give you a lot of answers, but it's, it's just one one angle, right? So it's just like you writing a text and me writing a text will result in two different texts, even if we know the exact answer. We'll, we will not write to the same text. And you know, for one person, they'll prefer yours. And the other person will be like, you know, like I like Ilana's more, just it's the same, you know, you bring a perspective as a human. <laughs> so I think it's just, uh, it's just one of the ways to do the job but it's not the way and it's not, I think it, it doesn't stand by itself. So you can use it as a tool, you know, maybe you, as your, instead of your first draft for like, a, for a long read, or maybe even for like a shorter, you know, piece of text, but especially when it comes to our work, which exists in flows for now, I think for a good few years, I think we're okay. I wouldn't be too worried about that. So my question for you would be, so now, first of all, I agree with you about the things that you said. For now, I don't think it's here to replace us. You know, I'm working also with clients these days and it's not going to do the work for us, basically, just not. But I would say that I do have some practices where, you know, I tell it to rewrite it in a different tone or I'm trying to do some research using it or I'm trying to use it as my research assistant asking questions, telling the chat GPT to pretend they're my users and then answering questions and stuff like that about specific use cases and how they would act and what would be their pain points and what kind of vocabulary do they have and so on. So I'm kind of experimenting with it right now. My question for you is, do you currently experiment as well with this type of tool or you prefer to be like a fly on the wall, learn from whatever is happening right now and then implement it in your process at a later stage? I tried it out pretty much, yeah, like right right after the hype started. I found it very, very impressive. You know, I instantly tried to break it. I, I tried to think of, um, you know, question formats that would be, I don't know, confusing. But uh, I think I asked it 
So I try to phrase my question in a very detailed way. And I think I asked this to, to name a feature that, you know, me and my team had a lot of debate about. And, and I thought, you know, let's bring in one more voice, make it an AI voice. But again, you know, just another voice. So we all have, let's say, our own, you know, data sets as these people at the meeting and our opinions. So I just wanted to add one more voice, which has a lot of information, like it's quite well informed, right? And it was, it was an interesting addition to our pool of suggestions. But again, it was like an invited, invited guest, you know, it was not the key, the keynote speaker or the team manager. <laughs> it was the fireside chat. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's how I used it. What was that voice? Was it the voice that, uh, looking back objectively, is it something that was implemented partially, completely, or something that gave you some kind of an angle and afterwards kind of ignored? In this case, this was rather like one more voice, you know, in a pile. Imagine like a voting situation. So, you know, it just contributed to that decision but it might have still been made if there was no, you know, AI involved. So to give you reassurance, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it was that kind of experiment where I just I just thought, why not to ask one more entity in this case? And I think it's interesting what you mentioned, like what you do with it. I think it's really interesting. And I I mentioned plain English before, and I think that. I often want to, you know, write in a way how most of the people that I'm writing for, you know, might think, meaning that I want to try and use the word, for example, that, you know, the vast majority will think of when they're looking at, I don't know, a feature or like anything. And I think it's a good tool to test that. So you can ask an AI to, you know, produce like I did a name or maybe a description of something and sort of put it next to whatever you came up with and see, you know, how like regular, I don't know, like conventional your solution was and what the AI offered, because there's a high chance that what AI offered is like the conventional thing. And you do not want to be too creative, you know, with your copy, sometimes you want it to be very understandable. And maybe that's a good tool to use to sort of make sure that you did not write something that is not, yeah, understandable enough. You know, I also try to give the tool feedback. For example, you know, if I feel it's too, too light, I will say it, maybe make it a bit less casual, maybe add some humor into it. I give it follow-up feedback and then it's giving me the prompts give me more accurate result at the end of the day. The main issue I have with it at this point is that it lies confidently. <laughs> People do too, you know, when True. you go to a meeting, sometimes um, someone can be very convinced about their data and it turns out that it's not correct. That's funny. <laughs> it's very human of it to lie with so much confidence. Everybody lies. Like Dr. House said. <laughs> okay. I think that I might set some time aside and play with the with the AI because 
what you mentioned that's an interesting that's an interesting approach and maybe i should go back you know and test a few more things we're doing an event by the end of the month called generative ai for ux writers and designers and i will show some stuff in that event so it's a free event you're more than welcome to join nice thank you and i'll add a link to the show notes and i hope we will publish this episode before it will go live so we can actually use it for some marketing efforts as well ilana how do you think we should name this episode? Books and AI. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, you could go meta and you could ask, you could ask the, AI, the AI to name this episode for us after giving it a description. <laughs> right. So I'm using this other tool now named firefly.ai. So it's just like jump to every Zoom call that I have. I hope I could do it retroactively. And then just give you like a recap of that meeting. And then I take that recap and throw it into ChatGPT and tell it more things like smart search stuff. Like, I don't know what kind of keywords were used in that conversation and so on. So maybe I could take this transcription of this conversation, put it into yeah, Firefly, like put the, the audio file into Firefly and then take this transcript and then put it into ChatGPT and say, Give this episode a name. Let's give it a shot. Yeah, we can try, you know, asking people like, this is Yuval's name for the episode. This is Ilana's name for the episode. And this is the, the AI's name. It's, it's just funny to, like, you know, to, to compare notes, so to speak. Right. We'll ask them to vote on it. How, what's my name for it? So for you, it's AI and books, right? Books, yeah. Or AI and books or books and AI, if you want to go alphabetic or not. We can make it wait. I have some ideas. Come on. Okay, so we have Don Norman's book. I need to find out the exact name. So it's the design of everyday things. So how about the content design of everyday things, right? Nice take. Because, you know, it yeah. was like mostly about how you take inspiration from this world by reading books, but also magazines. And also going to the underground at London Underground, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, I mean, people take the Metro for many reasons and I do it to read <laughs> the science. There, there is a lot of great user experience lessons in metros and also in airports, in my opinion. And I think it's yes. also something yes. they talk about in the book, the design of everyday fix. Or, you know, we can, we can name it the writings on the wall. I don't know, you know, the AI is coming to get our jobs, but it also refers to how I like reading stuff when I go places to use it as inspiration, like uh, read the signs or, you know, something like that. A lot of ideas. I think we, we can have like a whole workshop. You know, <laughs> about naming the episodes. So we have an editor, the editor will decide, but I like the idea of doing a poll, taking one of your suggestions, one of my suggestions and an AI suggestion yeah. and ask people, hey, what do you think? Yes. And as good writers, there is no ego. So, you know, the editor decides, we just suggest. Right. Until like the AI will just do all of the best ones, one by one. And then like, I don't know. <laughs> like, we won't, and we'll we get upset. <laughs> maybe. Or maybe I will be like, okay, that's like one less something to be worried about. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can maybe, you know, take some time and read a short book and feel... Uh, <laughs> Better run myself. Ilana, it was a lot of fun chatting with you today. My pleasure. So thank you for hopping on the call and being here and good luck with everything you do. I think uh, you're going to good places. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
For sure. And thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Writers in Tech. If you like it, make sure to give us some rating, reviews, share it with your friends. We would love to get more exposure, obviously, for our podcast. In addition, feel free to check the UX Writing Hub website. We have a free UX Writing course, which is going to incorporate AI-related stuff in the really near future, so check it out. What else? Only good stuff. Just check the website. Weekly blog posts, more podcast episodes, and a lot of fun. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye.